Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts chapter 25, where we are going to begin in verse number 23. Now, I really enjoy this story much more in my going through into the Word this time, because I've been to the actual place where this story happens several times since the last time I told it. And I can picture it all happening right there in that location. And so you will have to bear with me a little bit on my excitement over that. We know that the situation is this. The Apostle Paul has spent the last two years, that is, starting in 58 through 59 and now into the very beginning of 60, in Roman detention at the seaside palace in Caesarea on the coast. He is wearing a chain, connecting him to a Roman, so his freedom is a little bit limited, but he is not being treated as a condemned prisoner. He is a Roman citizen whose guilt or innocence has not yet been declared. Now, the reason it got drug out for all that time is because the last procurator, Felix, was hoping that Paul or his associates would bribe him to make a declaration of his innocence. But that never happened. And eventually, Felix is recalled to Rome uh, for uh, accusations of of uh, maladministration. Now, his big brother, I think it is, got him off on those charges. Uh, but he is replaced by Porcius Festus. And this guy, as soon as he hits the ground uh, in Caesarea, heads up to Jerusalem to kind of check in with the people there, uh, the Sanhedrin, you know, kind of get the lay of the land of his new administrative region. And immediately, the Sanhedrin starts demanding that Paul be handed back over to them uh, because they believe that they have the right to execute him. Uh, now, to his credit, Festus says, well, Paul is in Roman custody. He's a Roman citizen at Caesarea. If you wish, you may come down and present your case to me once I get back down there. So they do. And Festus, apparently thinking it reasonable once he's heard all the accusations against Paul, uh, that perhaps uh, another trial up in Jewish territory at Jerusalem would suffice. Uh, even though Paul believed uh, that Festus had enough information to know that these were all trumped-up charges. Uh, but anyway, as you know from the text, Festus says, Paul, are you willing to go with me up to Jerusalem for a trial there? And Paul's response was basically, no, I'm not. I'm a Roman citizen, and I am standing before a Roman judge where I belong. And therefore, because this is what you're trying to do, 
I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to appeal to Caesar Nero. And the moment a Roman citizen speaks those words, that's what has to happen. There's no more choice for the judge that hears those words. And so he can't take Paul up to Jerusalem for another hearing. Uh, he can't do the hearing at Caesarea himself. He can't declare Paul guilty and hand him over to the Jews. He can't declare Paul innocent and release him. All that's off the table now. He has no choice but to send him up to Rome. But he's got a problem. The charges are really not all that strong. And that's not going to look good sending him uh, to Rome uh, into the bureaucracy there with such a weak case. But he has to do that. And so he has to produce some paperwork. So when Agrippa II and his sister Bernike arrive at Caesarea to welcome Festus to the country and to his new job as administrator over the Jewish people, Festus turns to them and tells them about the case. And Agrippa is very interested in hearing more about it. And that's not surprising. Agrippa II came within a hair's breadth of becoming the king of the Jewish nation uh, back when his father died. Uh, if he'd been a little bit older, he was 17 at the time, if he'd been a little older, then probably Nero Claudius would have felt comfortable putting him into that job. But he didn't. So uh, he gave him a smaller kingdom to the north, but also uh, gave him custodial responsibility for all things Jewish religion. So he made him the custodian of the Temple Mount, the custodian of the Jewish faith. So he is a very religious person, this Agrippa II, uh, and he definitely wants to hear more about this whole messianic thing that Paul is involved in. And he will. Because the next day, there is a... There is a, an informal hearing at the Seaside Palace. I believe it was probably in the, um, the formal hearing room, which is in the front side of the Seaside Palace. Uh, and this is what happened. Verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernike came with great pomp. So they're all dressed up. And they're escorted in, probably lots of music and, and ceremony. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So this is a big thing going on here. All the powerful people in Caesarea are there. And Caesarea is a Roman Jewish city, a, a Roman Gentile Jewish city. Uh, and... It's the big harbor for import, export, and passenger traffic uh, in and out of the Jewish territory. And uh, the, 
this is where the uh, Augustan games take place every five years. It's a, a really important place. Uh, lots of activity, lots of things going on. And there is a Roman military presence there because it is the administrative headquarters for the Roman presence in Judea. And so all of the military heads, as well as the business leaders and probably harbor officials, uh, there's probably also some Jewish presence in meeting here. Uh, maybe not the most religious Jews, but some of the Jews that interact repeatedly in the society of Caesarea. All of those people gather into the audience hall at the request of Festus. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And so here comes Paul. Uh, I'm going to guess that he is in pretty decent clothes himself. He may even be, you know, uh, wearing a toga uh, with the, the appropriate amount of purple showing on the sleeve, uh, depending on how much Paul participated in that sort of thing. Because remember, Paul has already said in his letters, to the Jews I become like to the Jews, to the Gentiles I become as Gentiles. Uh, and so he probably is playing a little bit of a role here of I am a Roman citizen and I have been unfairly charged and I need to go to Rome to present my case before Caesar. So he's probably dressed up pretty well, but he's wearing chains uh, that attach him to a Roman soldier, or perhaps soldiers. That's normal procedure. Um, in fact, it's kind of related into a, Agrippa's dad. Uh, before Agrippa was born, uh, or maybe when he was a little kid, Agrippa I was quite uh, loose and free in his living, and he borrowed and uh, borrowed and borrowed and borrowed himself into a lot of debt and then tried to run away from that debt. And eventually it all caught up with him and he got brought up on charges and he spent some time in chains uh, awaiting disposition of his case. Uh, and then finally, because of his close connection to the emperor, he got all of that erased. And uh, when his chains were taken off, uh, he was presented with a gold chain of the same weight. And so I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Agrippa I hadn't made a really big deal of that happening in his life uh, and eventually coming through it and having the gold chain to prove it by. So here's his son, now grown up, ruling on his own. He's in his early 30s, I think. Uh, and he sees, here comes Paul, walking in as a Roman citizen wearing the chains of a detained person. Okay, got, your, got that in your mind? Got that in your memory? Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Now that, that's a little bit of a, a, a retweaking of what really happened. Uh, because if he actually had come to that conclusion, he could have released him on his own. But he didn't. 
He played the little political game with the Sanhedrin. Verse 25 continues, As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. Yeah, like he had a choice. Okay, honestly. Verse 26, But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. So there's his confession. I'm in trouble because I don't know what to put into the documentation to keep myself out of trouble with Emperor Nero. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And remember, he's changed. So when he stretches out his hand, there's a little bit of rattling that goes on. But what does Paul do? He gives his testimony and preaches the gospel. Verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. So that is Paul's personal understanding of what I just mentioned, that Agrippa II is very Jewish, He's very up-to-date on all the stuff that's going on within Judaism. He is the, the official Roman custodian of the Temple Mount and of the Jewish faith. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and then at Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. So he makes a reference to the fact that he was raised in Tarsus, very religious, but eventually... He goes to Jerusalem for his schooling. We know that from other texts. Verse 5. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So Paul keeps pointing to the fact that the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin and all those guys, they are quite well aware of Paul's story in its entirety. The fact that he started out, like so many of them, as a very zealous Pharisee, even trying to do away with the church. Verse number six. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. Now, Paul appeals to Herod Agrippa II as a, mem a fellow member of the Jewish uh, ethnic group, which he is. Herod, uh, Herod has Jewish blood in him. He's not 100% Jewish, but he is Jewish, and he's been living his life religiously as a Jew for the most part. There's a few things where he maybe fudges a little bit on the Pharisaic approach to stuff, but he is very religious. Now, what is this hope that Paul references? Well, the hope 
is resurrection. That's a Jewish faith point from way back, that there is the anticipation when particularly the Messiah shows up as the King of kings and Lord of lords, all of the righteous Jewish people will be resurrected from the dead. And so Paul believes that Jesus is the one who came as the Messiah to fulfill that promise and that there will be a resurrection of the dead once Jesus appears again. Uh, But that all started with Jesus resurrecting from the dead. Verse number 7 continues, And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he engages some of the religious leaders that are in the audience. Why do some of you reject this idea of Jesus resurrecting from the dead? Uh, If there's some Sadducees in the group, which Sadducees made up part of the Sanhedrin, he might be addressing them in their philosophy that they don't believe in the resurrection of anybody. So why do you guys think it's incredible that the God of the universe, the creator, can't raise people from the dead? Verse number nine, now he gets into his personal testimony. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, remember what the name of Jesus means. Yehoshua, in Hebrew, means he who is, that's the divine name, salvation. He who is salvation. And so Paul very carefully weaves that into the story to remember what the name Jesus means. So he says, at the very beginning of the story, I tried to wipe out faith in that name. Verse 10, I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So during part of Paul's persecution, which took place very early on in the first year of the, of the life of the church, I think probably at the tail end of 33, maybe at the very beginning of 34. But uh, during that time period, he arrested these people, he interrogated them, he beat them sometimes, trying to get them to recant. Uh, but in the end, if they were found guilty of believing a heretical idea against the uh, belief system of the Pharisees, uh, Paul would agree, just like he did with the Stephen case, that they were worthy of execution. And so, verse 11 I punished them often in all the synagogues. That's a reference to beating people to get them to quit uh, saying that Jesus is Lord. And I tried to make them blaspheme, that is, recant, say, okay, I don't believe it anymore. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So now he wants to tell about his conversion. In this connection... I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Remember, everything that Paul did during this persecution phase, he did under color of law. He was not a renegade. He was not 
waylaying people in the middle of the night, you know, jumping out of an alley and murdering them. He, everything he did, he did as a police officer for the Temple Mount Police, the Temple Security Forces, with the authority of the Sanhedrin. And so he goes to the high priest, he goes to the Sanhedrin, and gets the appropriate documentation to go to Damascus and carry out the same operation there and bring anyone that he charges back to Jerusalem for disposition. That was the mission that he was on. Verse 13, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, and I actually think he doesn't mean Aramaic, I think he literally means ancient Hebrew. Because Paul seems to be, to belong to a group uh, within Judaism that believed it was right to read and worship and study and pray in the ancient language, Hebrew, uh, rather than in Aramaic or most certainly not in Greek. So Jesus speaks to him in this, I believe, Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? Uh, That line right there is only found in this passage. Uh, And it's the idea that you would use a goad to make disobedient animals do the right thing. And I think that what Jesus was dealing with is that Paul, in his actions, kept hearing people testify about Jesus and bear testimony about Jesus and the resurrection. And that testimony, that information, was probably eating at Saul's conscience uh, because he had been convinced by his, his teachers, his rabbis like Gamaliel and others, that Jesus was a false Messiah, but everything he's hearing and the scripture text that these people keep quoting from seems to indicate Jesus was fulfilling those passages. And so that must have been tearing him up on the inside, apparently. And so that's why Jesus says this, I believe. Uh, Then I said, who are you, Lord? Which can confuse some people. Uh, The word Lord can simply mean sir sometimes. You say it whenever respect is due or more than likely you think it might be due. So I said, who are you, sir? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you. Uh, That's a reference to what he was already experiencing on the road to Damascus, but also a hint that he was going to meet with Jesus uh, somewhere in Arabia, possibly at Mount Sinai, I think, uh, and Jesus was going to teach him the gospel, teach him everything that he needed to know. That that comes up uh, in other testimony sections. Verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, 
This is all the farther Paul got in his testimony once before, before the crowd got all whipped into a frenzy again. Because the moment he suggested that God wanted the Gentiles reached out to, that put the end to them listening. But in this formal setting, uh, there's not going to be any writing going on. And so uh, Paul is able to finish that part of his testimony. Uh, that Jesus says that I'm sending you and protecting you from the Gentiles, uh, but I'm sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn to light, from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, and that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So, the gospel, in a nutshell. Paul had been given the gospel, he believed the gospel, and then he was made a preacher of the gospel to the Jews, but also, more importantly, an apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So, I responded to this supernatural divine call. And remember, Agrippa is very religious. He believes in all of that but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with the repentance. So I went out and started preaching Jesus and calling people to repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. So that's the reason, Agrippa, that I was accosted in the Jew-only area of the temple because they didn't like me in doing my ministry all over the world, including to Gentiles. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass— that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul wraps it up right here with the gospel. The fact that Jesus died for our sins, according to Scripture, was buried, rose again, and was seen alive by many witnesses.